Amen. Friends, you can turn in your Bible to Colossians chapter 4, and we are really close to finishing this letter, but there's a few more words that we need to give our attention to. And so Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, that's where we'll spend our time this morning. Uh, I was out of the room during announcements, so I feel like I should just say this real quick. If you are uh, serving in ShepCon, or you submitted an application for that, uh, just know that after 180 today, I need about five to ten minutes with you. So stay a little longer. We can meet uh, here in the basement. We could probably just head over even to um, the student ministries office. But just take five minutes um, just to give you a quick rundown of what that looks like. Um, and so I can probably help you prepare for that, all right? Uh, Colossians 4, verses 2 to 6. And God's word reads as follows. Paul writes, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Pray with me, Father, as we enter into your word. Help this truth to... Not only inform us, but also transform us. Help us to be attentive to it in a way in which we don't accumulate knowledge, but we truly walk in a new life that you've given us in Jesus. Thank you, God, for this time we have together. Use your word mightily by your power and your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps you've heard of Aesop. Aesop's Fables? Yeah? You know what I'm talking about. Okay, good. This is great. Um, He wrote some good ones. In fact, we don't know if he did or not because some people don't believe in him. He's kind of like Santa Claus. But supposedly, a guy named Aesop wrote these fables, and you know some of them very well. Uh, You know the tortoise and the hare, and it gives hope to people like me who are very slow. Uh, You've probably heard of the boy who cried wolf or the shepherd boy, um, which reminds you to draw attention to things when you really need to, or else you won't find help when you need it. There's one that I wanted to draw our attention to this morning, and I think it helps set the tone a little bit for the direction Paul is heading in this text. It's the story of a donkey in lion's skin. And it goes like this. A donkey found a lion's skin and dressed himself up in it. Then he went about frightening everyone he met, for they all took him to be a lion, man and beast alike, and they ran away as soon as they saw him coming. Elated at his success of this great trick, he loudly brayed in triumph. Donkey sound, I don't want to do it, that game messed me up. A fox was standing nearby, and he heard him. And he recognized him at once for the donkey he was, and he said to him, 
Oh, my friend, it's you, isn't it? I too should have been afraid that you were a lion if I hadn't heard your voice. Where we're headed in Colossians 4, 2 through 6, it's something like this story. The lesson that we're going to learn is very similar. Clothes may disguise a fool, but his words will give him away. Fine clothes, they can hide a person, but his words will ultimately unveil the truth. Where we're heading in Colossians 4, it gives us a very similar message. If you've been given a new heart in Christ, there are certain expectations of you, right? A new heart in Christ comes with a new mind, an ability to think the things that God wants you to think, to to put on a mind that seeks things that are above. Not only that, it then gives you this ability to live for Christ, to walk in a new pattern, in a new lifestyle. Not to do the things that you once did, but now to live in a way that would be pleasing and honoring to the Lord. But Paul understands, and I think it's very common for us, that it's actually very easy to put on the garments of a Christian and to speak in ways that don't model after Christ. And that too is something Paul wants to call out in this church, lest they find themselves thinking they are something they are not. Our words can betray us. Our words do give an indication of who we truly are. Our words are significant. They matter. They're probably the most important thing about us. And many Christians try to put on this new garment, this new life, and yet their words demonstrate that the abundance of their heart is not truly a life for Christ. A good life with a bad tongue proves you to be at best a disobedient believer and at worst a deceived one. A dead giveaway to a Christless heart are careless words. Where Christ lives and where he resides and where he transforms a heart, you talk different. You speak different. Your words reflect a new priority, a new love, a new affection, a new devotion. And so Paul begins to orient our thoughts here in this text to think of the words that we say as being of most importance. Because what we say demonstrates the treasure in our hearts. You would remember that Jesus says something like this in Luke 6. Luke 6, 43, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. What's interesting to know is Jesus ends this section with these words, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. We often conflate good fruit in our lives with being the things that we do, and that's true for us. But Jesus, even in Luke 6, takes it a step further to say, if you want to know what kind of fruit you're producing, test the words that you are saying. 
Think of the ways that you are speaking. Good trees produce good fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit. And out of the abundance of your heart, you will speak. So what then would it look like to use our words, to use our lips, to use this tongue to express the change that's happened in our hearts? Paul wants to help us with that, and he's going to show us three expressions to make with your lips the evidence that you've been given a new heart in Jesus. When our words look like what Paul talks about here, we can know that Jesus is our priority. When our words are heed these encouragements that Paul has for us here, we can know that we care most about glorifying God and less about gratifying ourselves. When we speak the way that Paul tells us to hear, we express that Jesus truly is Lord and that we love to submit to him. Here's the three ways that we express a new heart in us. Number one, a new tongue praise. A new tongue praise. Number two, a new tongue proclaims. And number three, a new tongue preserves. A new tongue preserves. We begin with a new tongue praise. We begin here in verse two, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And that doesn't seem like earth-shattering news until I ask the question, do you pray? What does your prayer life look like? Are you diligent in seeking after the Lord and communicating with Him and communion, communion with Him? Is it a desire of your heart to be in communion with the God who has saved you and is working in you, is sanctifying you? Do you take it seriously to speak to God? Do you use your words to communicate with the God not only that made you, but is remaking you in Christ? Do you commune with him? Do you speak to him? I think Paul understands the difficulty of prayer, which is why he writes it this way. Continue steadfastly in prayer. We need those words because so often it's hard to both continue and to be steadfast in prayer. It's something that we do every so often, and when we do it, we feel like we've done enough, and then we'll just come back to God when we're running on empty. But God is not like that. This isn't like filling the tank after your car is out of gas. This isn't like going to an ATM machine when you've run out of cash. This is going to the most important person in your life, the person who saves you, redeems you, sanctifies you, and will one day glorify you. And you must commune with him day after day after day. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says it, pray without ceasing. And it's much of the same thing here. And Paul's emphasis is that we would give ourselves to prayer so much so that we would never stop praying. And I think we've talked about this before. The image that that's not trying to create in your mind is that you, you crawl around on your knees and you're constantly talking to God because that would be both weird and also not what Paul is saying. If you were to do that, we would try to get you up and get you a sandwich and make sure you're okay. That's not the point of what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is absolutely you have time in your life that is dedicated to God in that way. 
You're devoted to God in a way where you, you have a, a point in your day, you have time in your day that you make to speak to him clearly, communicate with him fervently. But it's more so that your heart has what Pastor John calls a God consciousness, a God awareness that every waking hour and moment of your day, you think of, know of, speak to God. There are prayers you can say in your bedroom at night. There's prayers you can say in the morning before you eat. There's prayers you can say as you walk to class. There's prayers you can say as you get ready to hang out with friends. There's prayers you can say when you need to comfort and console someone in need. There's prayers you can say when you think of someone that you know is going through a hard time. There's prayers you can say for loved ones that you know don't know Jesus, and none of them often look alike. The point Paul is making is this. Give your heart and mind to desiring consistently communication with God. Whether that be dedicated time on your knees in prayer to him or whether that be in a moment of of passing from classroom to classroom, store to store, friend to friend, whatever it may be, think mightily and often of God. Continue steadfastly in prayer. If anyone knows how difficult this would have been or this is, it's not just Paul, it also would be Jesus. These following words remind us of his time in the garden. Paul writes, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And if you remember when Jesus is readying to be betrayed and he takes a few disciples to pray with him in Gethsemane, what happens? They fall asleep. They pass out. They give up. They can't keep up with Jesus. And that makes sense to us, but it reminds us that we need these words just as much as they do. Prayer, you know how this works. It's communication with God, a God that you can't see. And so oftentimes you'll find yourself getting ready. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. It was an awesome time. Thank you for helping me with school and You never know if it ended. You don't know what you said. You just fell asleep. It's a good suggestion for us here, not necessarily to become legalistic about prayer, but to think wisely. When do I pray? Am I alert when I pray? Do I give time to communicating with God, which is the best of my time? Do I give God time that's alert time, awake time, thoughtful time? time where I know I'm most ready to talk with him and to bear out my heart to him. That's what Paul means here by being watchful. It's giving God your very best time, time in which you're alert and able to communicate well. Be watchful. Live a prayer life in which you give of that time that you know is best from you to him. And not only that, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And this is a healthy reminder for every true Christian. A new tongue prays, and oftentimes when we think of praying, we think of God as a a genie. If you rub the lamp real quick, you get three good wishes, and you better communicate it fast before you pass out. That's not prayer. That's wishful thinking. 
It's a Disney-like version of how to pray, and that's not how Paul describes it for us. And the only ways that we will pray in this way, remaining steadfast in it and being watchful in it, is when we come to God in prayer with thankfulness in our hearts. When we come to God to pray, not only asking him for the many things that are on our hearts, but coming to him with gratitude for all he's already done in our lives. Do you approach God in prayer in these ways? Do you remain steadfast? Are you watchful? And are you grateful for all that God has already done for you? Every act of kindness, every ounce of goodness that has come down from heaven to you undeserved. Every day that you wake up and you see the world around you and you commune with your friends and you sit around a dinner table with your families, and you show up to your church, and you have eyes to behold his word, and your heart grows in affection for him, and you remember that he died on a cross for you, and he redeems wicked people, and he brings them out of darkness, and he ushers them into light. And not only that, but he will come again, and he will bring us one day into a place that no longer has any of these things like sin and sorrow and pain and affliction. One day he'll make everything perfect, It should drive you to pray to him in gratitude for all these things and more. A new heart has a new tongue. And that new tongue, it expresses itself in much prayer unto God. A prayer is more than just some kind of religious thing that Christians do. It's what people who know they are united to the God of the universe do because they love him. It's what you do each and every day with the people you love most. Your friends, I'm, I'm going to assume that you have some kind of group chat or because of some of you who refuse to believe in Apple products, you have a WhatsApp or a group me or you Facebook message. Maybe that was my time. Maybe you just have your own thing that I don't even know about anymore, but I would assume that whatever the method is, the people that you love, you talk to them a lot. Well, talk is cheap. If you say that you love God and you do not speak to him, if you say that you love his word and you, not, you don't use it to treasure up his goodness in your heart so that it would overflow back in thanksgiving to him and with, with an alignment of your will to his will, To say that you love God expresses itself in constant prayer to God. A new tongue prays. Not only that, but Paul demonstrates to us secondly that a new tongue proclaims. A new tongue proclaims. Your heart should be given to prayer. Paul recognizes this and then he also makes his own prayer request. And this ought to alter in our lives the way we think about the request we bring to God. At the same time, he says in verse 3, pray also for us. Here comes Paul making a request. What is it? Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Now you would remember Paul is writing this letter from a prison cell. 
It's not a good life. It's not an easy life, not a comfortable life, not a desired life. He's in a position and he's in a place in his life that none of us would wish to be in. Prison system in ancient Rome was not only uncomfortable, but tortuous and painful. And Paul enduring all these things for the sake of the gospel. Paul enduring all these things for the sake of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. And I would ask you, if you were in that position, I wonder what your prayer request would be. Because I know mine. Pray that I get out of here. Pray that I would be delivered from this situation. Pray that I'd be taken out of these horrible circumstances. Pray that God would open up their hearts to see that there's no point in keeping me here. I don't want to be here. I don't want to go through this anymore. Pray that something would happen to change this situation. It's not Paul's prayer. Paul recognizes that in praying, we don't just get what we want. We get what God desires for us. Prayer is a means by which we align our will with his will. It's why Jesus, when he teaches his disciples to pray in Luke 11, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. In other words, God, as I come to you with many things on my heart, I pray that in this experience, as I communicate with you, and as you continue to show yourself to me through your word, The things that I want would submit to the things that you want. And in that, Paul has been through so much already that his prayer, it's no longer for a way to escape prison. It's a way to be useful in prison. Isn't that amazing? In the midst of his darkest moment, Paul doesn't doesn't pray for a change in circumstances. Paul prays for more boldness. Paul prays that he would be useful Paul prays, if you've placed me here in prison, then make me useful for you here. Is that how you think of life? Is that how you think of making requests before the Lord? Is everything me, me, me? Is everything, change this for me, do this for me, do that for me? Why don't you change this up a little bit? You know what, this is kind of hard, I don't want this anymore. Or is it, God, would you use me in spite of whatever might be going on in me, and around me. That's how Paul prays here. Pray also for us that you would continue to use us in the proclamation of the gospel. Or he says it in this way that God may open to us a door for the word. You understand the imagery here. You know, people like to talk about all the time, like, well, you know, that door is not opening up. Oh, that's, that was a closed door. I tried to ask her out. She said no, so door, closed door. I tried to ask her again, still no. So the door has got a like a bolt at the top and another one at the bottom and looks like it's pretty closed. You understand the imagery. It's not about literal doors. It's about opportunities. Paul talks about it this way in Acts 14. They are going to the church in Antioch. When they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And Paul's looking for much of the same here, even as he's in prison, and it's his prayer request from these Colossians. Pray that God would open up opportunities for the word to work mightily in the hearts of the people here. 
This is the first and maybe the greatest prison ministry. It's Paul sitting in a prison cell, grateful to God for how good he is, content with where God has him, and using this as a means to promote and continue to proclaim the goodness of God. You want to be useful for God. Proclaim his word. Tell others of what God has done in your life. More importantly, tell others of what Christ can do for them. Notice what Paul's prayer is. It isn't that he's going to you know, share his testimony and tell others about all the crazy things he's done. No, his desire is that a door would be open for the word. This is what saves. This is what God uses to bring people who don't know him to know him. To bring people who do not love him to love him. If you want to be useful in that way, you want others to know who God is. You want others to know who Christ is. You want them to experience his love. There's but one way. A door must be opened for the word. And what is that word? He says it's to declare the mystery of Christ. The very reason he's in prison. Paul's not in prison because he was uh, just someone who stirred up strife in the community or even because he wasn't likable. Tons of people like Paul. The reason Paul was in prison is because he made much of Jesus. He downplayed and dismantled every other religion. He took lofty philosophy and he made it seem as nothing. And he didn't do this by being a jerk or by being mean or by being rude. He did this by making much of Christ, declaring him. Paul has already talked about in this letter what this mystery of Christ is. It is making Jesus known. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 2, this letter that's been going out, it's being written that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach the riches of full assurance and understanding and knowledge of God's mystery. What is it? It is Christ. It is knowing that God sent his son as a savior. It is knowing that all of us in this room and everyone outside it is a sinner. It's knowing that if it was up to us, we would have no way to be saved before God, but God initiated a way to do that through his son a perfect and sinless son, a righteous son, a son who lived a life we could not live and died a death that we ought to have died, doing that out of love for us so that we might be made one with God. That is the mystery, and that's what saves. In the middle of his imprisonment, Paul doesn't look to make much of himself. And there's many people that would probably do that, even in Jesus' name. Yeah, I was very bold for the gospel. That's why I'm here. Yeah, I talked a lot about Jesus. You know, I went through all these different towns, and God has been using me mightily, and that's why I'm here. Paul is getting himself out of the way. His desire is simply to proclaim the word, the mystery of Christ. Pray that I would be given boldness, even in a prison cell, to make much of Jesus. Verse 4 makes it so writes it so beautifully for us that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Listen, so many of you do know friends and family that need to come to know Christ. And the life you live for him, it matters, absolutely. 
how you demonstrate that God is doing a work in you and you're different now and your life is set on a new trajectory and you love new things and you're committed to pursuing righteousness, all of that's great. But your prayer should be, my prayer for you is that you would make the gospel of Jesus clear. Sometimes it gets so frustrating when a friend doesn't come to know Jesus, doesn't it? And you've been inviting them to all kinds of stuff and they don't want to go and you've had all kinds of conversations and you've gotten to know their heart really well and you understand even to some extent why they care about the things they care about and they don't want anything to do with the church and they don't want anything to do with Christ. But I wonder if you've taken that ultimate step of making the gospel clear to them. You can't fault your friend for not loving Jesus when you've never made him known. You can't blame your friend for not believing in someone you haven't told them about. You want your friends to come to Christ. You want relatives you know who haven't believed to come to Christ. Then tell them about him. Make it clear. Don't beat around the bush. Don't talk around the issue. Talk about the one that you know can save them and sanctify them. His name is Jesus. Paul didn't want to do anything else but to make it clear, which is how he ought to speak. I love that phrase. Paul recognizes if there's any good work that's going to happen here, it's going to be by me making it clear, which is the only way possible for this to happen. It reminds me of the words in Romans 10, where Paul writes, How then will they call on him, in verse 14, in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they've not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And he ends with this in verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing to the word of Christ. If you've been given a new heart in Jesus, then you've been given a tongue that will proclaim who he is. If you say that Jesus has saved you, then you will live your life out in a way that makes much of him and declares to the world, he didn't die just for you, he died for all who would believe. You make Christianity so much less about yourself because you recognize it's only about him. If you know Christ, and if you've been given a new heart, then set yourself up right to speak much of him. Be known to be a Christian, not just by the ways that you live for him, but by how much you speak of him. Tell others of Jesus. This leads us into our third point here. Paul is moving in this trajectory of teaching us how our words demonstrate new life in Christ. And so we have a, a new tongue that prays, we have a new tongue that proclaims, and thirdly, we have a new tongue that preserves. And you would recognize rightly that in this passage, Paul is beginning to move a little bit away of what Christ is doing in you to demonstrate that what Christ does in you should have an effect on the people around you. And so as someone who has been given a new tongue, that tongue now prays to God, but it also proclaims and declares about God who he is. 
and you wouldn't be proclaiming about God to a, to a wall because, again, then I would also sit you down with a sandwich and ask what is going on. That, we, that wall does not need Jesus. Maybe new light patterns. But that's it. You wouldn't tell that wall about Jesus. You would proclaim Christ to others, to people, just like you. People who need the gospel. People who haven't come to know who Christ is or what his love is like. And so Paul is shifting a bit to, to express how important it is that we live for Christ and speak for Christ because people are watching us and they're testing us. And if you say you're a Christian, okay, now everyone puts a target on your back and says, let's see if that's true. Well, you demonstrate that it's true by giving yourself to prayer by proclaiming much about him, and by having a tongue that, verse 5 says, walks in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time, and letting your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. Well, let's unpack that a little bit. At first you see in verse 5, when you've been made new, not only have you been made new so that your life would reflect that you love God, but it demonstrates itself in how you relate to people. And how should you relate to people? Well, you should walk in wisdom. And we try to complicate this, but there's no need to. Walk, it's just the daily pattern of your life. It's what you do each and every day. We've talked about this before. You do this every day without anybody telling you to. You walk. Walk is your habits. It's your daily life. And what are you to walk in? Wisdom. What is wisdom? If someone were to ask you what wisdom is, what would you define it as? I mean, there's a million definitions we could give it. I'd love to go with Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if you want to walk in this kind of way, then that means that your daily life, your daily habits, the things that you do day in and day out, they reflect that you have a healthy fear of God. You understand who God is. You live your life in a way that would reflect, I know God, I respect God, I love God. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Walking in that kind of way, it has an effect on people that are watching because it validates the very thing you're saying. If you say you're a Christian, but you show no reverence for God, you show no love for God, then why should people believe in the God that you say you worship? He can't possibly be real. You're saying one thing and your life is a very different thing. That's not possible. Walking in wisdom towards outsiders it's demonstrating to others that the God you believe in, you love, and you're devoted to, and your life reflects that. Not only that, but walking in wisdom towards outsiders, it's qualified by this, the end of this, ber this verse, right? Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. That's people who aren't Christians. That's people who aren't in the church. This is people who don't know who God is. Making the best use of the time. Now, that's an interesting statement. What does that mean? Does that mean that every time my unbelieving friend is over, we should just sit there and I'll just open up a Bible and hopefully as they see me reading it, they'll realize that maybe I want that? 
I don't think so, because I think your friend would go away, and then they'd be like, I don't want to hang out with this kid, because every time I go, he sits there with a book. We don't talk, we don't do anything, this is weird. And maybe you're getting the hint of the message a little bit here. Don't be weird. I know it's easier said than done. I know from my own experience. But making the best use of the time, it isn't that you show off just how righteous you are. And it isn't you show off that you're the best kind of Christian there is to know. If anything, walking in wisdom towards those who don't know God and making the best use of time that you have with them, it's valuing other people's lives. It's knowing them. It's understanding them. It's listening to them. Finding out what are the things that they like, what are the things they dislike, What are the things that make them sad? What are the things that make them angry? What are the things that bring them joy? What are the things they like to do? What things would they never want to do? What kind of food would they want to eat? What kind of food wouldn't they want to eat? It's going to be hard to develop a relationship with someone by taking them to eat Thai food, and they don't like Thai food. Guys, that's a lesson for another time too, but again, we're not talking about that right now. It's going to be hard to relate to people by doing the opposite of who they are. And just because someone is sinful and depraved and doesn't know who God is, doesn't mean they're not worth your time. Your time with them is valuable. In fact, Paul is kind of making that point here. He isn't saying, because you're a Christian and because you love God and they don't have nothing to do with them. My goodness, nothing could be further from the truth or what God desires from you than that. And you know it because if God had that heart, he wouldn't send you Jesus. So if you know Jesus and you know that Jesus loves the unlovable and the ungodly, you shouldn't be afraid of going to those outsiders. But you should be concerned with making the most of the time you have with them. Absolutely, there is a tension there. Because your life ought to look different, but your life also should reflect that of Christ. It should give freely. It should sacrifice daily. It should listen intently. It should be keen to wanting to know other people's hearts and knowing how is it that I can truly help someone else. Making the best use of time. It's knowing others. It's blessing them. By being who you're called to be in Christ, it isn't conforming to the world, but it is being there for it. You're in this world for a short while, and I pray that you would make the best use of that time by being like Christ unto everyone that you know. Not just when you're in church, not just when you're at your Bible study, not just in your small group, But each and every day, every normal pattern and rhythm of life, everyone that comes in contact with you, The message that Paul is saying here, it's really this. They should want to spend time with you. And some Christians, they've given the exact opposite indication to others. They're so eager to high horse it with their Bible and their theology and the things that they know, nobody wants to spend time with them. Jesus knew a lot more than you did, and crowds followed him incessantly. People wanted to speak with him all the time. People love to sit with him and eat with him. Tax collectors, sinners, shoot, even the Pharisees who were angry at him all the time wanted to be there. Is your life like that? Do people gravitate to want to be with you? Sure, they see something's different. 
but they also see you treat them different than everyone else in the world. Christians should be the most approachable, and let's put it this way, the best hang of all time. That's what you've been called to in Jesus. And we fill that concept out with verse 6. Walking in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of your time. It looks like this. It's letting your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Seasoned with salt, this is a concept close and near and dear to my heart. You know, as an ethnic person, Latin, Latin background, if it's not seasoned with salt, I don't want it. In fact, it oftentimes needs more than salt. Like it needs an abundance of salt and pepper and cilantro and maybe even some salsa. I'm not sure. Depends on what it is, right? Like if it's cake, I probably would leave those things off of it. But the point is, you, you understand how good that is on a daily basis. You don't want flavorless pizza. Be awful. You don't want flavorless chicken unless you do, and then I, I'm here to help you. I'm your pastor. Come talk to me. I would love to work through that issue with you. Seasoned with salt. Salt is a concept, in, especially in this day and time, which absolutely has a, a, a connotation of making things tasteful. It also has a connotation of making things last. They didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have freezers. So you couldn't just pop something in the freezer and come back six years later and there it was and you were still going to try it out. Six years is a long time for a freezer too, actually, so don't do that. But it has this ability to make something tasteful. It has this ability to make something last. It's a preservative It gives flavor, and it also makes something last a long time. Paul's point is, be someone who's useful. Be someone who, he's, someone people want to be around because he makes things better. Be that kind of friend, be that kind of person that when you're with someone, they're like, this is the kind of person I want to be with. This is the kind of person I want a a long-standing relationship with. And, And what's the key to making that happen? It's letting your speech always be gracious. Our Proverbs talk about this so much, and it's no coincidence because Proverbs is wisdom, and you're called to walk in it. So Proverbs twelve eighteen says, There's one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Walk in wisdom. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but gracious words are pure. Proverbs 15, 26. And one of my favorites, Proverbs 16, 20 to 24 says, Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. The wise of heart is called discerning, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Good sense is a fountain of life to him who has it, But the instruction of fools is folly. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Verse 24, gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. You've been called to speak in that way. There should be something sweet, something pleasant, something likable about the way that you speak. 
And you need to understand Paul's message is that that transcends and it's more than simply the message you declare. It's the way you deliver it. Don't ever hold back on declaring the truth of God to your friends and your family, but always do so in a way that would reflect the sweetness of grace that you've received in Christ. Words that are filled with grace demonstrate a heart that's already filled with grace. When you speak in this way and you think of others in this way, you're the kind of person people want to talk to. And I wonder if you could say that. Christians aren't called to be jerks. They aren't called to uh, demean other people, put other people down. They're not called to act like they know everything. Uh, Honestly, you don't. And truthfully, neither do I. You're called to a particular humility and compassion and kindness. You're called to meekness and patience and to bear with others and to love them. And when it comes to those outside of our own church, you're called to love them and to speak to them in a way that would make you the kind of person they'd love to talk to. I hope that's you. Paul rounds this out by saying that if you're that kind of person, You're also that kind of person, at the end of verse 6, that would know how to answer each person. And so you pave the way to conversations with the sweetness of your speech. And in doing so, you pave the way to give them the answers their heart are longing for. You want to tell people about Jesus? Love them like he would. You want to tell people about the truth of Christ? Give your life freely to them, just as Christ has done for you. Make your words sweet. Speak things that would preserve your relationship with them, that would demonstrate your love for God, but also your love for those who don't know him. That's what Paul is saying here. If you're a Christian, you're someone who's mindful of your words. And so you recognize that because of this, you speak much to Christ. You declare his truth. And you do so in a way that not only honors and is pleasant to God, but it honors and is pleasant to the person you're speaking to. If you've been changed on the inside, it will reflect itself on the outside. Not only in the many things that you do, because you can do a whole lot for God and not mean it. But true transformation inwardly, it'll reflect itself. Yes, in the things that you do but evidently most in the things that you say. What do the things that you say tell us about the God that you believe in? What are the things that come forth from your mouth declare about the Jesus that has saved you? Does it show the world who Christ is, or does it show the world that you say a lot, but you don't mean a lot? You have a lot to say about God, but you don't really know him. Your words matter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for it is truth. We pray that we would take your word seriously. We pray that you would help us to love you and be devoted to you, not only by living a righteous life, but by speaking righteously, speaking in a way that would reflect that we love God and we are being transformed by him. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for this time we've had in your word. May it work in us so that we would reflect the glory of Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.